0: Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, the book of Colossians is about the kingship or the lordship of Christ because of who he is and what he did and much of what we've gone through in the beginning of the book was about the person of Christ, his nature, his work. And then Paul takes those principles and applies them. And so in this last part of the book, we see a lot of practical application of what it means for Christ to be Lord, the Lord Christ Jesus. If Jesus is not your Lord, he's not your Savior. He's either the Lord Christ or he's not. So we can't sort of take parts of Christ that we like and leave parts that we don't like. In the previous verse, said Christ is all and in all, so he expects complete control. And so this passage particularly gets really into the details, and as a result, it's more controversial than most, because the more Christ presses his commands and his lordship, the more it impinges on our lordship. It's one thing to say, Christ is king, great. But then when you start applying it directly, then it gets more uncomfortable. So let's read the text, and we'll start in verse 18. Wives, submit to to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Isn't it great when that's the first verse? (laughs) I almost read the first before just to sort of ease into it. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus, Lord Christ. For he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So as we're saying, this is Christ saying, I'm the king, and here's how you should live. And he really says... In detail, how you should live. It's the application of the previous passage. where It talks about, uh, as elect of God, put on tender mercies, bearing with one another, uh, putting on love, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? He says, okay, here's how. This is Christ reigning. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then he goes into detail saying, here's what word and deed look like in your relationships. So we have three relationships here. Husband and wife, parents, children, master, servant. So three relationships, six parties. And he goes through each one of these and gives them their disciplines, what they should do. And obviously, it's very controversial. Which is funny because what's controversial for us today is the two parts where it says wives submit and slaves obey. That's only a recent controversy. If I was preaching this a thousand years ago, I'd have the opposite problem. It would be more controversial to say husbands love your wives. So culture changes. And what's controversial now was not controversial before and vice versa. Which is why we read the Bible. And it tells us what is right. And then we look at culture and say, where does it fit? How does it match? If the Bible never offends you, you must be God. God's never offended by His Word. He knows what it is and He means it. We are only offended because we're not God. So a a text that sort of grates on us from God means that there's something wrong with us or the way we were trained. Or the way the Bible was taught to us. Let's not remember that just because someone preached from the Bible doesn't mean they preached the Bible. And this is a perfect example of that. Much of the teaching on this passage, especially the first part in America, has been wrong and shaped by culture, just a different culture, uh, more of a patriarchal culture. So to understand this passage, we have to do it a little bit differently than what we would normally preach. That's Maybe a little bit more teaching, a little more context. So we're going to look first at the context of this passage. You cannot understand any one verse in the Bible by itself. Amen. You can't. And God doesn't want you to. So he didn't just give you wives, submit to your own husbands. He gave you the book of Colossians and the New Testament and the Old Testament. So when we read this, we cannot say, well, what just do the words mean here? But what's the context around them? How do we understand it? The context of this whole chapter is about mutual submission. So before you can know what a wife is supposed to, what does submit mean? Is, it, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What's a slave supposed to do with a master? Before you can look at those, you have to look at the context of mutual submission. That's what the whole previous paragraph was about. what so we split it up into two weeks. When it says in verse 11, Christ is all and in all, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, Christ didn't, uh, Paul didn't forget that verse a paragraph later. So before you get to the passage about slaves obeying their masters, you go back and you see what's the context. What about forgiving one another, bearing with one another, loving one another? There's no divisions there. In Ephesians 5, there's a parallel passage that talks about the exact same thing. Paul's writing to a different church. He prefaced this where it says wives submit. He says, first, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives submit to your own husbands. Do you see the tension there? Submitting to one another, wives submit to your husbands. Well, which is it? Which is it? Is it submitting to one another or wives submitting? So we have to sort of understand there's, there's more going on. It's not simplistic. Don't we want everything to be simple? You ever studied history? How did World War I start? One guy shot another guy. No, I mean, it was more than that, right? There's always more to the story. It's always complicated when people are involved. And so what the Bible is doing is giving us principles and expanding on those principles and applying those principles. And the main principle here is mutual submission. So before we get to this, look back at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Before you get to husband and wife, you have one another. That's everybody equally. So mutual submission means that every single person that first speaks the truth to everybody else, regardless of their social status. So, when we get to this passage about servants and masters and slaves and wives, first you say that everybody that's going to be mentioned is first saying the truth, speaking the truth. That means wives speaking the truth. Who are they speaking the truth to? One another. Everybody. They're not just speaking the truth, teaching and admonishing one another. Correcting. It's one thing to teach. It's another thing to correct, isn't it? It's one other thing to say, here's some new information. It's another thing to say, you're wrong. Who gets the right in a church to say to another person, you're wrong? One another. So before you get to slave, wife, master, husband, you have every single Christian has the right and the duty, responsibility to correct other Christians. So when you think, of submission or obedience or love, make sure it falls into the category of mutual submission, mutual correction, teaching. And right there, you see a lot of the problems fall away, don't you? A lot of the, the, the hesitation we have with these passages disappears when everyone has the right to speak up, to confront, to correct. If you love someone, you'll correct them. Because it says there, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. If a wife submits to her husband, she'll correct him. She'll confront him. If if a wife does not confront her husband, she's either mistaught or she doesn't love him. So whatever you think or, or understand submit to mean, it does not mean keeping your mouth shut. Can you imagine a world where women were freely allowed to confront their husband over sin? That doesn't sound like patriarchal society, does it? There's a picture I've seen, and you've probably seen it if you're on Facebook, of an umbrella that says Christ, and underneath of that another umbrella that says the husband, and underneath of that a smaller umbrella that says the wife, and underneath of that a smaller umbrella that says children. First of all, You don't need four umbrellas. You only need one umbrella. So that whole thing just falls apart by if Christ can't protect you from the rain, the husband is surely not going to. (laughs) What that illustration harmfully does is make it seem like Christ is here and there's somebody between the wife and Christ, and that's the husband. Where's that in the Bible? You see, when this says wives submit, that's Jesus Christ saying to a woman, you obey me directly. There's nobody between me and you. So I'm telling you directly what to do. There's no umbrellas. There's a direct connection between every believer and the Lordship of Christ. And if a man, husband, father, master, whatever, wife, children get in the way of that, The lordship of Christ trumps whatever human relationships out there. Mm -hmm. Patriarchalism says the husband represents the family. That's not New Testament Christianity. The husband represents himself. There's neither male nor female. And he talked about that in Galatians. That means when you go to Christ, you go directly to Christ. You don't need a another human on this earth to go between you. Now, that was the Old Testament. And what's happened in America and in, in modern society and in a lot of other Western cultures and even other uh, parts of the world is we've taken the Old Testament model of approaching Christ and applied it to the New Testament. When well, in the Old Testament, you had to have a priest. So in the New Testament, you must have to have a priest. And in the Old Testament, the priest was the father. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they went for their family, they worship. So in the New Testament, it must be the father. Yes, that would be true unless something has changed in the New Testament. And if you don't know that change, your marriage is going to be messed up. Your relationships are all going to be messed up. Unless you know that you go to Christ directly, that Christ is Lord over you personally, you will not know how to relate to other people. you either be completely rebellious or completely submissive. Neither of which are biblical. So we love each other. Because we love Christ. And because we love Christ, we submit to him. And so what Christ does here is he tells us what he wants us to do in our relationships. He rules over the relationships themselves. He doesn't say, you just follow me by yourself and then whatever else over here. No, he rules in the relationship. You see, relationships are not destroyed in Christ. Sometimes people say, well, there's neither male nor female. Yes, that's true because the Bible says it. But then it says here, wives, submit to your husbands, husbands. So there is a distinction. In our lives, there are levels of identities. You don't have just one identity and none other. You are both a Christian and an American. You're both of those things. If you're a man, you're a Christian and a man. Woman, Christian, and a woman. So you have multiple identities. What the Bible is saying here is, which one goes at the top? And the book of Colossians says, your relationship with Christ is at the top. So you are still a woman, man, married, single, father, son, but those are underneath Christ. They're underneath your identity with Christ. When you say, who am I? First, you're Christian, then your husband. So that's why why this passage works down from we're all equal before Christ to we are all submitting to one another to wives submit to your husbands. But in that order, they're not just on a level plane where they all stand next to each other. They're in order, which means they must submit upward. So before you can know what a wife is supposed to do with her own husband, you must know what a Christian is supposed to do with everybody. And before you know what you're supposed to do with everybody, you must know how you relate to Christ. So if you're not a Christian, you can't be a good spouse, husband, father, worker, because you will not submit to Christ. And if you won't submit to the Lord of creation, how are you going to work within creation? So what this passage is calling us to do without realizing it is first repent of your sins and believe in Christ. Submit to his lordship. Otherwise, why would you submit to this part? The relationships are not destroyed. They're subjected to Christ. And one of the problems with this passage is that it's used selectively by those in power. The one in power will use the verse that supports their position. So it's the husbands who say wives submit. It's the masters who tell the slaves to obey. But that's chopping up the Bible to serve your own ends. The Bible says wives submit, husbands love. Children obey, fathers. It has mutual responsibility. Who enforces that? The church does. The reason we have such a problem with these passages is because the church has failed for hundreds and hundreds of years to equally enforce this passage. Where was the man who was harsh? to his wife, brought up on church discipline. Why is the church not bringing men who are harsh to their wives up on church discipline? Why did the church not bring masters who are not just and excommunicate them for breaking God's rule, for defying the kingship of Christ? Because culture didn't let it happen. And so the church has bowed to culture and has not equally enforced this. It's chosen one or the other, whichever one works. And usually those in power decide. So the question is, who's in power, Christ or you? And as a church, which rule will you enforce, the one in power or Christ's rule? Mm -hmm. If wives submitted to their own husbands and husbands loved their wives and the church disciplined its members to do those things, much of the problems we have would disappear. But because it only selectively does it, we have abuse. Abuse, taking power that you should not have and using it to hurt people. The church was specifically given in these passages to prevent that from happening. But when the church doesn't do anything, you can't blame the Bible. Don't blame Jesus for letting men use power. Jesus tells exactly what's supposed to happen here, and our job is to do that. What a lot of us don't like is how he tells us to do it. It's a lot of submission in this passage, isn't it, for a lot of people. We don't like passiveness when we're being wronged. Mm. We want action. We want violence. Now, remember who this passage is talking to. It's talking to the church, the gathered body of Christ. It's not talking to every single person in the world. It's talking to the church. How should the church live? How should a Christian live? Nonviolence is what this passage is teaching. Can you see that? Wives submit, husbands love, children obey, fathers do not provoke, bondservants obey, masters give what is fair. You see the lack of violence throughout the passage, lack of aggression, the lack of pressure, control. There's a foreign affairs article talking about political movements as an example. It says nonviolent movements are four times more successful than violent movements. Now, if you're an American, you're like, well, it worked out for us. Here's one reason. Now, see if this comes from a Christian perspective or a worldly perspective. Nonviolent movements are also better prepared to transition to a more peaceful democratic government because they're able to build parallel structures to the government. They use the example of solidarity in Poland, which developed into a kind of shadow government, facilitating its ability to step into a leadership role as communism crumbled. He's saying nonviolent builds a separate society in which things are working well. So when the main violent society, unjust, evil falls, there's already a community in place to assist. That's the church's role. It's not to be the government. It's to model what the government should look like. So nonviolent movements work because the church, as an example, is living with mutual love, is living in right relationships with each other. It's already living in a society. See, what we try to do in America is we try to merge them together and try to have a Christian government. And God is saying, no, be the church. And as the church, as you live in your own community, living the way God intended, those outside will see it and say, well, that's working for them. Why? Why does it work for them and not for us? And we can say, because of Christ. And so we build up a parallel society, an assembly, a called-out gathering, what the church means and model what the world should do. But if we intend to enter the world as a church, mix with it, where's the model? Where's the parallel? As I've been reading history and studying it, I keep on coming across Martin Luther King. And I'm realizing more and more that King understood Christianity better than most of us. Because he was able to take Christian ethics. So you have Christian doctrine, what the Bible teaches, and what the Bible says you should do. So doctrine and ethics. And he applied it. And he applied it so well that you can look and see the biblical model. And so what King does is he came up with an idea called nonviolent resistance. He didn't come up with it. Uh, Gandhi was doing it before, but Gandhi didn't come up with it either. In fact, Gandhi and King both specifically said, we read the Bible, we read Jesus, and this is what he wants us to do. And when we look at King and his nonviolent resistance, we see what this passage is talking about. There were six parts to King's nonviolent resistance. First, one can resist evil without resorting to violence. Now, if you're an American you're naturally going to feel uncomfortable with the idea of nonviolent resistance because you've been trained to love violence. From your your American heroes to your American movies. And I'm not just talking about sort of the, the violence on the streets. I'm talking about violence as a means to get what you want. So if you're familiar with Martin Luther King, he had a another person who wanted a different way, who was King's rival. It was Malcolm X. Malcolm X said that we should use violence to produce equality separation. But here's what was funny. King was not opposed to Malcolm X. He was opposed to something else that Malcolm X was following. Malcolm X did not create the idea of violent resistance. He got it from George Washington. In fact, he says, when the, Malcolm X says, when this country was first being founded, there were 13 colonies. The whites were colonized by Britain. They were fed up with taxation without representation. So some of them stood up and said, liberty or death. I went to a white school over here in Mason, Michigan. The white man made the mistake of letting me read his history books. He made the mistake of teaching me that Patrick Henry and George Washington were patriots. There wasn't nothing nonviolent about old Pat or jo- George Washington. Liberty or death is what was brought is what brought about the freedom of whites in this country from the English. You see the contrast? America was built on violence. George Washington is an American hero, but what did George Washington do to become a hero? He killed people. King says no. Nonviolence is the Christian way. Now that's not how I was raised. I was raised to love war, love resistance, love to fight, to value George Washington, to value the heroes who stormed the beaches, who killed people. But is that the Christian way? Is that what this passage teaches us? To take up arms and fight and kill? It does not. The way of Christ is the way of love, it's the way of peace. In verse 15, it says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And so King took that and he used it. He says, you can resist evil. You do not passively let evil happen. See, that's what we think. We either fight it physically, violently, or we just let it happen. But Christ shows us another way. You resist evil without violence. Second, nonviolence seeks to win the friendship and understanding of the opponent, not humiliate him, to make peace. Third, evil itself, not the people committing evil acts, should be opposed. Do you see Christ coming out of this? Coming to this earth not to fight us, but to save us? To die on the cross, not to kill us? To defeat evil, not defeat us? That's nonviolent resistance. Fourth, those committed to nonviolence must be willing to suffer without retaliation as suffering itself can be redemptive. The redemptive nature of Christ's suffering, he did not commit violence. He suffered violence. And as a result, we go free. So when we look at this passage, it does look very passive, but it's not. It's redemptive suffering. That's hard to hear. That's why I'm using King, because he knew more about suffering than I ever will. Fifth, nonviolent resistance avoids external physical violence and internal violence of spirit. King says the nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but also refuses to hate him. The resistor should be motivated by love. Oh, that's so hard, isn't it? Because if you don't shoot him, he's going to shoot you. If you don't fight, you'll be oppressed. Yes. Yes like Jesus. And King Saul that this was the way of Christ. Not just external violence but internal. Christ seeks your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Let the peace of God dwell, rule in your hearts. Is your heart peaceful? You see most of us say, "Well, we don't use violence." But would you? If you could Does the peace of God rule in your heart? And six, the nonviolent resistor must have a deep faith in the future. Stemming from the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. That's what this passage is teaching us. It says it's tough right now, but God's in charge. Things will work out because God will make them work out. So what King was teaching America was he's saying, we Christians know what it means to change things. But we do not change things through violence. We change things through love, through nonviolent resistance. So when you look at your relationship, husband and wife, father, children, work, what are you using to change things? Love or violence? The way of Christ is the way of peace. So when you see evil, look to King as an example, as an illustration He stood up and he said, that's wrong, and he wouldn't be quiet. Wife, if your husband is wrong, you need to stand up to him and say, you're wrong and not be quiet. That's your job as a Christian, is to resist evil. You do not manipulate, you do not coerce, but you speak the truth in love. And any religion that does not let a Christian speak up freely about the truth is an oppressive religion, and it's not Christianity. Children, if your parents are living in sin, say that to them. Speak the truth. Resist evil. Can you imagine a world where Christians spoke up and wouldn't remain silent? And did not coerce and did not corrupt and did not try to force things to happen, but just would not stay quiet in the face of evil. You see, slavery was ended with violence but it didn't change America's heart. What King saw was that violence can end some outside stuff, but only changing people's heart will heal. And so all those years later, 100 years later, they had to choose love. And it doesn't look like it'll work. It looks foolish. It looks weak. Just like the gospel. The foolishness of preaching. The weak things in the world. But God uses those, just like he used Christ to save us. So when we look at our relationships, submitting to Christ and loving each other will produce change. So let's look at specifically, quickly go through the the actual individual uh, scenarios. Wives, submit to your own husbands. You submit to him as a wife. That's not your only identity. You are also made in the image of God you are also a believer. But as a wife, you submit. You do not submit your humanity to your husband. So if your husband is trying to get you to dehumanize yourself, that's sin. It is not submission. If your husband is trying to go between you and God, that's sin. That's not submission. So as a wife, in the marriage relationship between husband and wife, the wife submits. But as a Christian, you do not submit to your husband. You submit to Christ. As a human, you submit to God as made in the image of God. So much of this is submitting, is degrading yourself, debasing yourself before a husband. No. As a wife, I don't know exactly what all that means, but you are always in the image of God. You never submit that to a man. You are always a believer and you never submit that to a man. So whatever it means for a wife to submit to her own husband, she is never to be oppressed by this. You defer to the husband's authority and love, in the marriage. And when the husband wants to take spiritual authority over you, away from Christ, you resist. And when he tries to take human authority from image of God, you resist. You do not say, well, I have to submit in all things. Not the things that belong to Christ. And the church has a duty to enforce that. To look out and see women who may be being mistreated and stand up for them. Or we don't follow Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Look at the comparison. Wives submit, but husbands love. Husbands have a much larger responsibility. We don't think of it. Love is like, oh, you know, just care for them. No, die for them. Give up everything for the wife. Wives, just submit your authority. Husbands, submit everything. As Christ died for the church, husbands, look at your, at your marriages. How much are you giving up on behalf of your wife? How much of your authority are you using on her behalf? Not as much as you should. You see, it's not just about caring or having a feeling. It's about sacrifice. How much of your power is sacrificed for her benefit, not yours? And do not be bitter towards them. We say, well, I'm just trying to do the right thing, and that's why I'm so mean to you. I don't have time to be nice. Then you don't have time to serve Christ. Christ says do not be bitter towards them. Bitter means you ever eaten something bitter, that nasty feeling? Now imagine that nasty feeling is going into your wife's ear. The words out of your mouth have power. You see, we think of spiritual, we think of abuse as striking somebody with your fist, pushing them down the stairs. But Christ says the words out of your mouth can be abusive. Are your words kind or are they abusive? Are they nice or are they harsh? You can't just do good things. You see what it says? In verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed. Husband, are your words kind? No, they're not. They're not. Come on. Well, we're men. We don't like to do this. Yeah, we're sinners. If you're not kind, you're abusive. You're bitter. Like water that kills people. Bitter water. In the, in the book of Revelation, it talks about wormwood poisons people. The water became bitter. Your words can poison your wife. But a Christian man will use his words to love his wife. He loves his wife in word and deed. Look at the family. You know why we have kids in the service? Because the Bible is written for children. It's not written for just for adults. It's written for children. For example, children. So if you're a child, this is for you. This is not for anybody else right now. So Your parents don't have to listen to this part, but you do. How do you follow Christ? You obey your parents. Ugh, That's not what any child wants to hear. Right? It's tell your parents they can't tell you what to do or that they're wrong. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Follow Jesus because he cares about you. You see what he's written? He's written a verse just for children. Jesus is not for your parents alone. He's not just for grown-ups. He's for children. Jesus cares about you even when your parents don't. Every child here knows your parents don't always care about you. They ignore you. They mistreat you. But Jesus cares about you. He cares so much about you that he wrote a verse just for you. So obey your parents as a way to please Jesus. Tell your parents when they're wrong. If you're a child and you see your parents sinning, say, Mom, Dad, that's not what Jesus wants you to do. You serve Jesus. You don't need your parents to serve Jesus. And fathers or parents, do not use your power to oppress your children. Fathers, provoke not your children. Restrain your power. Submit to your children. What? Fathers, submit to children? Yes, because you can make your kids do almost anything. You're 10 times bigger than them. You have all the money. You have all the power. You have all the control. You can force your kids to do things. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't provoke. Don't use your power whenever you can. Restrain yourself. Use your power to grow your children, not control them. Ephesians chapter 6 says, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You should be training your kids to not need you, to grow up without you having to control their lives. If you're controlling your children, you're limiting them, you're pressing them down, you're restricting them, you're putting them in a box. Imagine a plant that you put into a box. It can only grow with spaces in there. So the Bible says don't provoke. Don't constantly oppress your children with rules. Help them grow. If you're growing a vine, you put it on a trellis to help it grow. But the goal is not for it to have a bigger trellis. The goal is to have a bigger vine. The head of CID in Scotland Yard said... Used to deplore the ill-advised legislation which so multiplies petty offenses that high-spirited lads, he lived a long time ago, without any criminal intention intention, are caught up in the meshes of criminal law. Side note, that's still happening. That's still happening. You can make enough laws where everyone can get caught if the police want them to. But that's an application. But the traps laid by modern bylaw legislation are few as compared with the don'ts which confront the children of many a home. There's so many rules. Dad's always mad. Mom's always trying to get you to do something. Against this is the apostles' don't is aimed. You fathers don't irritate your children. You see the don't? It's at the parents. Back off, parents. You control your kids long enough, and you'll crush them. You will not grow them. You'll crush them. Conservative Christianity is terrible at this. We say, well, the Bible says, so you have to. I'm in charge like the Bible says. And as a result, you crush their spirit. Are your kids growing, becoming stronger, becoming more aware, becoming more able to make right decisions, or are they just obeying you more? If they're just obeying you more, you're just using power to control. In this last part, slaves and masters, this is difficult. He doesn't tell the slaves to rebel. I don't know exactly why, but maybe because it doesn't work. It's Not because it's not evil, but because it doesn't work. It's Martin Luther King versus George Washington. George Washington fought and killed to be free. Martin Luther King spoke up, and loved to be free. Which will you choose? You see, what's so evil about slavery, and, and we're all, if you work or have worked you are a slave, you're in bondage. Capitalism has created a system where we're in bondage to money, and America has reinforced that. You need things, and so you need the money, so you have to go to work. Check your work, your work record with your church record. Were you more faithful to work or church? Everyone gets up for work. Not everybody gets up for church. You can't serve God and money. You can be a slave without actually being a slave. And so we have become slaves to money because we need to consume things, and we expect the church to reinforce that consumption. So we're all in bondage because we have to survive in some cases. What do we do now that we're in bondage? See, the Bible is written for everybody, not just for Americans. Slavery suppresses your humanity. It makes you a cog in the wheel of consumerism, of production, of money. All slavery, look at it. It's so that other people can make money. They can use you to make money. And so that makes you less of a human. It makes you a machine. But look what God says. Obey in all things, your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward. Work hard because Jesus cares what you do. You ever go to work and you think, this is dumb, this is pointless. It is in this world. But Jesus cares about every task that you're doing. Obey him in word and deed. You can worship God when you're doing your taxes. You can worship God when you go to work. You can worship God in the menial task of your job. Yeah. By saying, Jesus, do you see me that doing this? Pray that way. Jesus, do you see me filing this? Do you see me working here? I'm doing it for you. I'm not doing it for my boss. He's kind of a jerk isn't he? Some of you don't answer that. It doesn't matter if he's a jerk. You're not working for him. You see what the Bible does? It raises you up out of your low position at the bottom of the company, at the bottom of the social scale, and says, you work directly for the creator. You work directly for God, and he will pay you. You work as worship. God gives dignity and honor to your work, even if the world doesn't. The world doesn't care about you. Your job doesn't care about you. When you're done, they'll forget about you. And they'll forget about all the work you've done. But Jesus doesn't forget anything. Knowing from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there's no partiality. Work like you're working for Jesus. Because he actually cares about your work, and your boss doesn't. And then finally, master's. Those who have all the power, give your bondservants what is just and fair. Power brings responsibility, responsibility to justice. The church has failed in this area in America. We do not speak truth to power. We side with power. We cozy up to power. How many times was Billy Graham in the Oval Office? How many times do you see pastors meeting with presidents? They're not speaking truth to them. They're using them for their power. In the 70s and 80s, the moral majority wrangled the evangelical vote to make religion serve power. Ronald Reagan was not a Christian leader. He was a politician. He was a liar. But people, fundamentalists, Christians, used their Christianity to support him. They did not call for justice. They called for power. And that is still happening today. Every president caters to Christians, and they use Christian language to get Christians to give them power. But look what the Bible says. Masters, give your bod service what is just and fair. Power brings responsibility to justice. Is that what's happening? Do we see justice in this world? Do we see politicians bringing justice or perpetuating power? McLaren says... People like to show charity, but there wouldn't be a need for charity if there was already justice. An ounce of justice is worth a ton of charity. You see, we're so consumed with losing our power that we never speak up on behalf of people in jobs who are being oppressed. You know, in the meatpacking industry, they use illegal immigrants. American companies use illegal immigrants, and when there's a problem, they call immigration to deport them. That's injustice. Where's the Christian outcry? Where has the Christian stood up and said that's unjust and that the Bible specifically, directly says that's wrong? You know it's wrong to get children to make your shoes and your clothes? You know that the Bible says that's wrong? What does the Bible say about slavery? Pay your slaves. Pay them. You know why American slavery was so evil? Because the preachers at that time ignored this verse. A workman is worthy of his hire. Does it bother you that Amazon mistreats its employees? Probably not. Do the sweatshops overseas bother you? You see, now we're on the side of power. We don't call out injustice when it benefits us, when it makes things cheaper for us. We say, oh, that's that's liberals and that's progressives and that's Marxism, that's socialism. No, it's not. Masters do what is just and fair. So the church's job is to train its members to seek justice in the world. The church is not to be out in the world seeking justice. We're not here to go to, to Washington and lobby our politicians. But you as an individual citizen may need to. Are you speaking up against injustice or are you just benefiting from it? See, the Bible does not let us off the hook just because we're all going to heaven. Yes, Jesus paid for every sin and he expects us to confront those sins. Why? Look what Christ had to suffer because of sin. Look what Christ said about justice. He said, I love justice so much, I'll give every drop of my blood for it. Now, Christians, don't you care? If Jesus cared that much, how can you not care? If Jesus raises up women to serve with him, why do we suppress them? If Jesus loves the church and gave himself for it, husbands, why don't we? If Jesus served without recognition as a poor, humble carpenter for decades, why don't we? Why don't we? Because we don't really see who Jesus is. We haven't submitted to him. If you see who Jesus is, you'll Marriage will be different, your family will be different, your job will be different, and your country will be different. But not in the way that we're taught. It's nonviolent resistance. It's loving one another. It's speaking the truth. And it's praying that the Holy Spirit will take the truth and use it. That's what we're depending on in our lives, and that's what we're depending on this morning. Either the Word and the Holy Spirit spoke to you, or nothing happened. Submit to Christ in every area of your life. Let's pray.